Well, hello. Uh, I'm Joyce Klein. I'm director of the Aspen Institute's Business Ownership Initiative, and I'd like to welcome you to our discussion today on scaling lending to entrepreneurs of color. This conversation is part of the Global Inclusive Growth Partnership, which is a collaboration between the Aspen Institute and the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. And our initiative at the Aspen Institute has been working for about 25 years to expand access to business ownership as a source of economic opportunity in the United States. And in that work, we've dug pretty deeply into the challenges that entrepreneurs of color face in starting and growing businesses. And so this topic is very much at the center of the work that we do. And so I'm delighted to be moderating this event today. I think there's been really widespread media coverage of um, the fact that people and communities of color have been disproportionately affected by the economic impact of the, of the COVID pandemic. And I think we all have a sense of what's happening to small businesses. We see the businesses on our neighborhoods and our communities being really deep, deeply impacted. Um, and those owned by people of color have been in particular impacted, more likely to close, more likely to face declining revenues. I think most of us have also probably seen the media coverage of the rollout of the Small Business Administration's primary relief programs targeted to small businesses, the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, as we might have heard it, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. Um, and in that coverage, we heard about how difficult they were for many small businesses to access, um, but that was particularly true for business owners of color. And these outcomes were pretty predictable uh, because of historic barriers to building wealth people of color tend to start businesses in industries that don't require a lot of startup capital. Um, industries that also often have thin profit margins. So things like food businesses, personal services businesses, construction, and, and those kinds of businesses um, and the fact that they have more, more difficulty accessing capital makes them less appealing customers for banks um, or even for SBA programs. And that in turn limits their ability to invest or simply to save up to guard against economic, economic and business downturns like we're seeing right now. And, and those are the industries that have been in fact hardest hit in this particular pandemic. So the businesses that have the most need have also been, um, had the hardest time getting access to help right now. So today what we're gonna do in our conversation is talk about the challenges that entrepreneurs of color have faced um, but we're also going to talk about the institutions that can and do reach entrepreneurs of color. Um, they're working to help businesses, owners, businesses and business owners right now, sometimes with loans, but also sometimes with other tools to help them survive this pandemic. And they're also going to be needed as we get the pandemic under control and try to help communities and businesses and individuals recover. And so we think there are ways that government, that philanthropy, that impact investors can support those organizations. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So for our, our conversation, I'm joined by four people who have deep and varied perspectives and experiences on this topic. Um, I'm going to introduce them to you now. I'm going to start with Francisco Lopez. Francisco is the vice president for, of business innovation and partnerships at DreamSpring. Um, DreamSpring is what we call a community development financial institution or CDFI. It's based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it lends and provides support to entrepreneurs in the South and in Southwest and the Mountain West. Um, and before joining DreamSpring, Francis can work with a financial institution um, that worked in the US and Hong Kong and Mexico. So he has both public and, and nonprofit expertise and expertise globally as well as here in the US. 
So welcome, Francisco. We also are joined by Marla Blow. Marla is the Senior Vice President for Social Impact at the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. Um, the center is focused on issues of financial inclusion broadly, but also has a deep focus on supporting small businesses um, and on inclusion of, of small businesses. Um, and also I would note before joining MasterCard, um, Marla also had experience with issues of financial access and financial inclusion, both in leading a startup that worked to provide consumers with access to more affordable credit cards and also at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So hi, Marla. Um, Michael Barr is also with us. Michael has a long title. <laughs> he is the Joan and Sanford Weil Dean at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. Um, so Michael's looked at this issue from a research perspective, um, but he's also held senior positions at the Treasury Department where he's led the development of policies and programs to address issues of access to capital, of community development, and worked on issues related to domestic financial institutions. And we also have Tim Ogden. Tim is a senior fellow with our program, the Business Initiative at the Aspen Institute, and also with our colleague program, the Financial Security Program. Um, he's also the managing director of the Financial Access Initiative, which is a research center based at NYU Wagner. And in his work, Tim has led research projects and written extensively on issues of financial inclusion for households and also for businesses both in the US and globally. So welcome to all of you. Thanks for being with us today. Um, let's start by addressing this question of why entrepreneurs of color are locked out of or have such difficulty accessing traditional lender. And I, Michael, I'm going to start with you. And if you can tell us what you've learned, you've done the research, you've done been in the policy roles. Um, you also work with directly with entrepreneurs in some of the work you do at the University of Michigan. So what have you learned about from all of those experiences about the challenges business owners of color face in accessing capital? Thanks, Joyce, and thanks for putting together this terrific panel. I'm glad to be here today. The experiences I've seen both at the federal level and in our work in Detroit um, suggest that even in very good times, entrepreneurs of color have difficulty getting access to capital. They have difficulty getting access to business networks uh, for peer advice and for business opportunities. And they often have difficulty getting access to the range of skills they need to build out their business. And so skills, networks, and capital really have to go together uh, for businesses to be able to thrive. Oftentimes, entrepreneurs of color don't have uh, strong relationships uh, for lending with local banks. Uh, they have uh, difficulty getting access to the kind of uh, old boys club in the community that they're working in. And so these barriers really make it much harder for entrepreneurs of color. And then you add on top of that basic structural problems in our society that have led to uh, massive black white uh, wealth gap. Uh, so entrepreneurs of color are starting out without the kind of resources internally uh, that enable uh, white entrepreneurs uh, to, uh, to succeed. So it really is super challenging for them. Now, on top of all that, we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic. And as you pointed out in your introduction, uh, entrepreneurs of color uh, have gotten th uh, thwacked uh, even harder by this COVID crisis than other small businesses, uh, all of whom are suffering through this, uh, through this pandemic. So uh, entrepreneurs of color tend to be uh, located more in communities that are hit worse uh, 
uh, by COVID-19. I've certainly seen that in Detroit in our work in the Detroit Neighborhood Entrepreneurs Project. Uh, it, it's just been devastating. And people of color have been hit worse by the disease. Uh, so on top of the issues of economics and concentrated effects on economics, there have been concentrated public health effects in communities of color. So all these layers on top of each other make it really challenging for entrepreneurs of color in this environment. Thanks, Michael. Tim, you've also got the research angle here. So um, what has your research shown us about who gets access to financial capital um, and why? And how does that relate to race and ethnicity in the US? You know, as Michael mentioned, the this all starts with a black-white wealth gap. And I think we have to start from the fact that uh, serving customers who are not already uh, highly visible and integrated into the financial system is more expensive. Um, you, there requires a lot more uh, re, uh, outreach. It requires more marketing. It requires more underwriting. Um, and, and that's a good thing that you know, we want responsible lenders out there that are doing the right thing to make sure they're making um, loans that are affordable and useful and beneficial for the borrowers. But as a consequence, you know, those, those loans are, are more expensive to make. And uh, you know, as Michael was saying, these businesses are um, borrowing smaller amounts because of where they're coming from and what they're trying to do. And that matchup of uh, ex expensive to underwrite plus uh, smaller loans means um, loans to these communities, to these kinds of business owners are going to be less profitable uh, for any lender that makes them. And, and that has consequences in what kind of loans that, uh, business, that, that the banks are willing to make. Um, are they willing to invest in that, that outreach? Are they willing to do the kinds of underwriting necessary uh, to establish both creditworthiness and make sure that they are making a loan that's going to be beneficial to the borrower? And we see this, uh, you know, this is the story of microfinance globally, is uh, making loans into poor communities is expensive. And so you've got to find some things that you can do uh, to lower those costs. Um, and that can come both from uh, uh, you know, business model innovation, uh, but it also comes from the cost of capital to the lenders. Um, and so philanthropy has always played a big role, um, historically going back thousands of years um, and, and in the present and making sure that the capital is available to lend in the first place and supporting institutions that are willing to bear those upfront costs necessary uh, to make high quality uh, beneficial loans uh, to people who are, are not yet uh, fully integrated into the system. And so, uh, you know, I, I think we see uh, that continuing in the United States today is um, the, the process of integrating uh, entrepreneurs of color um, does require additional investment up front and therefore requires institutions that are committed to making that effort. And it requires those institutions to have access to the capital to invest in that upfront and to, to support those loans. So that's a perfect segue to Francisco <laughs> because he's in one of those organizations that is doing that kind of lending, um, that's willing to build those relationships. So um, again, Francisco, you work at a community-based micro lender, DreamSpring, it's a nonprofit, but you're in the business of, of lending to folks who are generally not able to access capital from, from banks. Um, tell, us this, tell us about the kinds of businesses you work with, what it is that you do differently as a lender from way, you know, what a bank would do. Do you underwrite differently? Do you think about risk differently? 
Do you have money from different sources? What it is that allow, what is it that's different about what you do and how you operate that allows you to serve different kinds of customers? So one of the, the big differences, and I think uh, Tim uh, charged on it, um, is that we, we get funded by different sources. And when we're talking about lending capital, uh, we might have lending capital that comes from banks in a traditional sense. We might get some unrestricted funds that we can lend out uh, to traditional uh, entrepreneurs. But then we also receive lending capital uh, from philanthropic organizations. And when they come from philanthropic organizations, it's very focused, might be state restricted or for a different segment or particular segment of the economy, uh, which might be under, uh, underserved entrepreneurs of color or might be for rural um, communities, et cetera, et cetera. What that does is that is it allows us to take on, I would say allows us to take on a little bit more risk. That's one. Secondly, it also allows us to provide capital to small businesses that if you look at them or if you look at the loan from a traditional sense, we're basically losing money, right? So any loan that is uh, probably from $10,000 or, or below, we are losing money. And the only way that we can do it is with that philanthropical support. So that is a big difference uh, as to what banks do, right? Um, we basically are more, obviously more mission oriented and what we are looking at besides the underwriting, which we might do a little bit differently as well. We look at the whole, the whole persona, not just at the business, and how it will do, et cetera, et cetera. We also look at their personal history. We build that relationship. And if it makes sense, we'll bet on it. And we will lend to, to those underserved borrowers. But a big, big difference is uh, how we source our capital. Great, thank you. So Marla, um, the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth and the work that it's really doing to try to work with small businesses around this issue of inclusion and access to capital is very much centered on working with community development financial institutions like DreamSpring. So talk a bit about from your perspective about why these organizations are important in this moment and, and going forward as well. Yeah, absolutely. That We look at CDFIs as the front line on being able to reach the smallest, most local, hardest to reach businesses. The businesses that I think as Michael described earlier in his remarks, may not have relationships with traditional banks and may not be able to participate in programs like PPP, which were delivered by and large through the large banks uh, and, and ultimately CDFI access to things like PPP was critical to being able to reach the businesses that are located in in black communities, low income communities, communities of color, all of the, all of the parts of, of the country that are not in that, in that big middle, right? In the big defined middle. There's still meaningful activity, really important businesses that are important to their communities, important to the entrepreneurs, important to their customers, their end customers that they serve that through other than CDFIs would have essentially almost no access to a financial institution at all. And ensuring for us, you know, ensuring that the CDFI community has the liquidity, the technology, the wherewithal to be able to continue to provide that support has never been more important than it is right now. That is part and parcel of the work that we've done in the center and our ability to, to look at organizations that otherwise may not have the right, the right kinds of, 
of registrations, the right kinds of reporting, the right kinds of, of submissions to be able to participate in the require to get through the requirements of the major banks and more traditional lender kinds of programs. So Francisco's description of looking at the whole, looking at the totality of the organization, not just taking a set of reports that might not reflect the entirety of the receipts from the business, that might, there, there might be reasons why entrepreneurs choose to, to incorporate or not incorporate. And knowledge of those businesses is, is the critical enabling piece of being able to serve. The thing that's important to think about MasterCard is on the commercial level, we are a network and in very similar way on the philanthropic side in the Center for Inclusive Growth, we operate as a network there as well. And we see CDFIs as our partners in being able to act as that network where we can't have the knowledge in every local market, an ability to understand what's going on. And we count on our CDFI partners to, to have that local market knowledge, bring that to bear, keep that sector thriving, be able to make the differentiated decisions on the margin, and then be able to act quickly and be responsive and be able to provide what is needed in those communities to, to help them thrive. So we are, we are huge believers and huge supporters in the CDFI universe for, for all of those reasons. And I would note, Francisco, you participated, DreamStream was a, participated in the PPP program. You did a, a, a lot of lending in much smaller dollar amounts than most banks were making PPP loans. So can you just give us an update on uh, what volume you did, like how much lending did you do and, and what kind of borrowers you served through the PPP? Of course. I'd love to talk about PPP because it was uh, a, a process that evolved in a very interesting way since round <laughs> one uh, back in March. Um, to give you some numbers, uh, we were able to serve uh, around 2,500 uh, borrowers, uh, of which 80% of those were new clients for us, meaning they were not part of our portfolio, completely new clients. And in a for a total of around $70 million, and also just to give you an idea, we normally uh, lend out on a, uh, last year, we lent out close to 23 million. So we basically were able to lend out uh, about close to four, four times what we do in a year, we did it in five months. And I think that 50% of those 70 million were done in the first two to three months of the pandemic, meaning they were done in April, May, and June. Fantastic. Um... Yeah, I, we, we talked a lot during that and you guys really stepped up and moved into and, and really what was what is interesting, I think, about that story. And, and Michael, I don't know if you have a comment on that as well, but one of the criticisms of the PPP was that banks were starting with their existing customers. They weren't reaching out to new businesses who weren't part of that infrastructure. So anything yeah, else you'd add to what or observations on what Francisco shared? I think that's exactly right, Joyce. I, I'm super impressed by what Francisco is able to pull off um, in such a short period of time. It's really hard work. Uh, and I think people maybe don't appreciate just how hard the work is that Francisco is describing. Uh, so a, a, gr a great um, example. I do think that the PPP program, the small business program that the administration set up um, from the beginning was really not well designed to reach small businesses, certainly the smallest of businesses, and not well designed to, to reach entrepreneurs of color. Uh, not well designed to reach businesses in economically distressed rural communities uh, or uh, economically distressed uh, urban communities. 
And that's in part because of the uh, phenomena that you described, Joyce. A lot of the uh, banks started with their, not just their existing customers, but their existing bank customers who had loans already from the bank. So lots of small businesses that had transaction accounts uh, with banks couldn't get access to business capital uh, in the beginning stages. And in the early, early on in the PPP, CDFIs were largely shut out. Uh, and it took an enormous uh, work on the ground, lots of effort by many in the coalition that Marla and Joyce and others have been working in to get uh, CDFIs at the table and then to have funds uh, directed towards CDFI programming. And that made a big difference in CDFIs getting access to PPP funding to be able to go out uh, and do more lending. But there's still lots more work to do and the PPP program did not meet in any way the demand for small business capital out there. Uh, we need to see, I think, a massive infusion of investment uh, into the CDFI sector. Uh, which is all of you have been describing is really on the front line of serving entrepreneurs of color and businesses in distressed communities. So I think we need to see a really just a, a significant uptick in that uh, through the CDFI funded treasury and also uh, the kinds of programs, Joyce, that you and Aspen have been working on to try and develop a secondary market liquidity facility uh, for CDFIs to be able to lend more in um, uh, to, to, to distress businesses. So I think all these measures are going to be required. Uh, we're really still quite in the middle of a terrible economic crisis and small businesses are being hammered every day. We need to figure out how to do more. So Tim, I'm going to bring you in here again, because we've been focused a lot on sort of what just, what's been happening now and, um, and where we are with relief programs. Michael started to get us looking forward. So we want to look forward, but in looking forward, it's also, this is the first time we've, for many of us, we've lived through this kind of an economic shock, but it's not our first recession. Um, we just got through a great recession. Well, it seems like not that long ago. Um, so talk a little bit, like based on what we've seen in the past when our economy has been in recession, what happens in the small business credit markets and what should we be thinking about is going to happen going forward based on those experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Michael sort of uh, hinted at this and when he was talking about how the banks were thinking about approaching PPP is you only serve your existing customers and you only serve those customers who you're really confident are going to repay based on the fact that you've lent money to them already, that they're already your, your loan customers, you've already done their underwriting is, you know, when a bank looks into a recession, um, they have demands on their capital. They have to start believing that some of their loans are not going to repay. And Therefore, they're going. You know, banks uh, understandably become a lot more cautious about their lending, and so when they have these standards that are very difficult for entrepreneurs of color to meet in the first place, uh, in a recessionary environment, you know, it, it, the gulf just gets that much bigger. And that's certainly what we saw in, in 2008. Is um, uh, everybody uh, in the financial services industry flees to safety to make sure that they maintain their own stability? We have lots of regulations to maintain the stability of the financial system for reasons that we saw in 2008. Uh, but you know, for, if, if we care about communities of color, uh, about poor neighborhoods, um, you know, they bear the brunt of that retreat because they were on the margins already and 
as we've talked about, are, are more deeply impacted in recessions. And that's exactly what we saw in 2008, is that capital going into poor communities dried up, and it didn't come back. So if we look at the, the data from 2008 on, um, the lending to small businesses did not recover to the point uh, where it was in 2007, and especially never recovered um, for urban communities, for distressed rural communities, some of the people that, that Michael's been talking about. Um, and, and that put a lot of pressure on organizations like DreamSpring, because not only was DreamSpring trying to reach these communities, but even you know people who were better off were being turned down by the banks and were coming uh, to CDFIs looking for for lending. And of course, DreamSpring and, and, and its brethren and its peers are are um, are under pressure because they are trying to work out with their customers in support of them. Uh, offering concessions, keeping those businesses open, giving them the space to be able to recover. And so the need uh, to capitalize CDFIs gets even greater if we want to address a, a recession. And, and I think we, should, we need to be honest here, we are headed into a recession, a recession that's disproportionately going to affect low-income communities, who, uh, where a larger percentage of the workers can't work from home, where a larger percentage of the businesses uh, can't just go virtual. And if, if we're going to have institutions that are able to respond, then they have to have access to capital to be able to do the right thing by their customers, to not be the people who are knocking down their doors, demanding their repayment so they can keep their lights on, so they can keep their doors open. And so we need the people who have access to capital, um, the, the banks, uh, other large corporations, the government, philanthropy, to be channeling the, the capital to these organizations who have the boots on the ground, as Francisco said, to go and work with uh, these businesses. Uh, and if we don't do that now, um, we're going to see this repeat of the recovery from 2008, which is a, re a recovery that works really well for better off communities, for better off people, and stays flat for an enormous amount of time uh, for low-income communities. We've talked about the importance of institutions that really want to serve this market. We've talked about some of the specific barriers of entrepreneurs of color, but Francisco also talked about an, an issue here that some of this is not specific to um, the race or ethnicity of the borrower. It's simply something that's about how expensive and hard it is to make smaller loans. And because more entrepreneurs of color need more small need smaller loans, that's a more difficult business challenge to deal with. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about this smaller dollar loan problem. And Marla, I'm gonna come back to you because you've had experiences less on the business side, but more on the consumer side, but you're you tried to build a credit card company that was getting small amounts of credit to consumers um, who are having difficulty accessing affordable credit. So from your experience, as well as your current work, like what are the challenges about um, really doing smaller dollar lending on a, on a large scale for underserved or, or harder to serve borrowers? It's a great question. And it is, a, there, there are many dimensions to this problem. I certainly found in, in building FS Card, which is the, the credit company that I previously founded prior to, to joining MasterCard, um, that the challenges of accessing capital and accessing credit that my customers faced, right? The customer base we were trying to serve was, was a consumer-oriented subprime, you know, deep kind of subprime, small dollar customer base. Um, we faced those same problems accessing credit as a business, right? Finding the capital that would enable us to offer products to this customer was in and of itself incredibly difficult. 
and that capital that we could find was extremely expensive and that that cost of capital informs the price that the customer then has to pay and that's where the whole chain starts is is where the capital comes from who's willing to provide it under on what terms and what are the proclivities of the founder right and so i i was the founder brought my own perspective to it and really wanted to create a fair transaction and, and fair access opportunity for this customer base, but also had to face the demands, right, of, of the market I was in, of the cost to serve this customer, of the cost of the capital. And all of that makes it really, really challenging to, to offer this product. I was operating in the consumer space where there is actually quite a bit of very structured data that's available and some fairly well-defined rules of the road. But when you get into the small business space, the data starts to really vary quite widely, right, on, on what's available. The rules of the road are very different and may not have the same kinds of guardrails that, that consumers have. So some of the practices that your competition might be willing to engage in that was, you know, if you are trying to be an ethical market participant, it's really hard to compete with that. And you face challenges of making a fair deal in, in the business space, in the small business space. That is, that's just a very different problem and a very different proposition um, from what we're facing in the consumer space. But that said, the same challenges about access to the capital to enable that kind of lending and that kind of lending at as, as reasonable and efficient a price as possible is still the, the same challenge and that, that has, we haven't found an answer for that yet. I think we, can, we are looking right now in response to the moment that we're in at, at the capital structure and, and up the chain, right? What's going on in the limited partner arenas where they made capital available to the typical investor classes that we might think of, right? Think of, of venture capital funds, private equity funds, some of those kinds of entities that act as intermediaries, they have incentives that are set by their limited partners. Their limited partners are big pension funds, big endowments, big family offices. They have opportunities to change some of those incentives and maybe change some of those return requirements for capital. All of that can flow down through this system and, and change some of these dynamics. But my view is it starts at the top of that funnel. And it's a difficult place to, to engage. And it's not a place that people are as widely familiar with. But I think if we think about what are the upstream things that contribute to the challenges that Francisco faces now, the challenges that I faced as, as an entrepreneur, and the challenges that we're trying to address from the, from the perspective of a market actor and as a philanthropic entity at the center, it's, it's all the challenges up and down the chain in, that, in, in what I just described. And so I think with a, few, with a few opportunities to intervene, we might see some of this loosen up. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we have an opportunity here to intervene and, and change some of this. Great. Um, Tim, I'm gonna come to you because you have the global experience in microfinance as well as in the US. Um, and people look at the, where in microfinance, industry sector is larger uh, in many emerging counties than it is in the US. So, um, Tell us what you've learned about what it takes from those experiences to, to scale this smaller dollar lending, which is essentially what we mean when we say microfinance. Right. Uh, and, you know, obviously how micro it, uh, is on an absolute basis varies from country to country. But 
Uh, we are, by and large, talking about the same challenge uh, that led to the modern microfinance movement, which is how do you make loans at these small amounts to these somewhat opaque small businesses that uh, require, you know, building relationships. And understandably and rightly, there's been a lot of uh, attention focused on the business model innovations uh, that, that led to the modern microfinance movement and a lot of coverage of that. But even more important, I, I honestly believe, and something that doesn't get attention is what really has allowed the microfinance movement to get to the scale it is uh, globally isn't the, the group lending and the, the tweaks that they made and you know, how they, they process loans and weekly meetings and, and repayments. It's that the microfinance movement, uh, the modern microfinance movement, got access to capital from outside the communities that they were operating in very, very early on. And so the, those institutions were able to fund their lending without pulling that capital back out of the communities. They, they weren't limited to that pool of capital. And that scalability that then very quickly went from a, a, a grant and a loan from the Ford Foundation to Grameen to a global industry that's channeling capital into microfinance institutions around the world, that gives the, those institutions the ability to do what they've done, to innovate their business models, to find ways to reach out to people, to make transitions, to learn about how to make loans best, to figure out um, uh, all of those things they can do um, on the technology side. Uh, and that's something, honestly, we haven't done nearly as well in the United States. Uh, and I attribute some of the, the challenge we've had in scalability and lending in the United States to specifically that challenge. How do we connect organizations like DreamSpring to more and more reliable sources of capital. Uh, and as Marla was saying, more and more reliable sources of capital at affordable rates. Uh, and so one of the things we've been working on within uh, the Aspen Business Ownership Initiative is particularly something called the Entrepreneur Backed Assets Fund. Uh, and that is a, a market uh, uh, Michael referenced earlier. Uh, the idea of the Entrepreneur Backed Assets Fund is, is largely modeled on a lot of what we've seen uh, internationally, which is the ability for organizations like DreamSpring and other CDFIs to do the work that they do best, get on the ground, identify borrowers, make uh, loans that are good for the borrower, and then sell that loan on to others who don't have the capability to do that on that groundwork. And then DreamSpring gets the capital back in hand that allows them to make another loan much more quickly. They don't have to wait for the loan that they've made to be repaid before they can get back out there and find another business that needs that capital, can put that capital to work. And if we can do that at scale, so that we're not doing it sort of one loan at a time, which is incredibly expensive in and of itself, if we can do that at scale, so that uh, DreamSpring and other CDFIs like it uh, can um, recapitalize themselves on a rolling basis, that just that has a real uh, a multiplier effect on the amount of lending that we can do into low-income communities. Great, thank you. Michael, I'm going to come back to you because you've been in policy roles where you've thought a lot about how we scale up the work of CDFIs, how we get more access to capital. And the federal government has a range of different tools. Um, it can provide funding itself. It can also create various kinds of incentives for the private sector to invest in certain ways. So what are your thoughts about um, what's worked in the, what kind of policy initiatives may have worked in the past that we should be looking at and what we should be doing going forward to try to really enable this kind of capital to flow. 
Well, there are a number of different strategies. I, I, I do think that one of the strategies can be the one Tim described, which is helping to develop a secondary market for uh, small business lending by CDFIs. Joyce, you'll, you'll recall that's something we've been talking about for 20 years, uh, <laughs> really since the end of the 1990s. I think it makes sense as a strategy. I think that Treasury and the Federal Reserve and the current environment could work together in this emergency to set up such a program. I've urged them to do that. Uh, I, I think it would be really helpful for CDFIs and small businesses they serve in the middle of this crisis. Uh, a second major strategy is to increase funding um, from Congress uh, for the CDFI fund, which is a fund in the Treasury Department that supports community development financial institutions around the country. And that program has proven to be very successful since its inception uh, more than 20 years ago now. And uh, I think that that can uh, continue to be invested in. I, I think that it would make sense to dramatically expand the funding for that program. And the CDFI fund then can provide grants and loans and capital investments, uh, technical assistance grants into CDFIs to help continue to build that network around the country to help them serve uh, low-income uh, communities and uh, entrepreneurs of color. A third strategy that has been very successful in reaching entrepreneurs of color are programs that are done in partnership with the private sector and the states uh, all over the country. Uh, early on, those were known as capital access programs. I think Michigan had the first one established in the late 1980s. And in the Obama administration, we created a $3 billion program called the State Small Business Credit Initiative to bolster those state uh, programs, those state partnerships with the private sector. And those proved to be highly effective in reaching small businesses and entrepreneurs of color in addition to uh, more mid-sized firms. And I think it would be a really prudent strategy for Congress to reauthorize that program now in the middle of the crisis and get those funds out to the states and to the private sector to help support small businesses right now. The last thing I'll say is that there are some particular circumstances facing small businesses that are really unusual and that require kinds of support that are not usual in, in most normal times. A lot of really small businesses need grant funding. It's not something we normally do for a small business for all kinds of good reasons. But in the middle of a global pandemic where our public health measures and the public's rightful concern about their own public health has meant dramatically lower revenues for many small businesses and dramatically higher costs uh, to operate safely. I think that we need to have significant grant programs in place uh, for small businesses to help them ride out the current crisis. So Francisco, how does that list <laughs> line up with what you think you need right now and what's gonna help you to be able to, to continue to lend and do more lending coming out of this crisis? Uh, it perfectly, it aligns perfectly. So definitely capital source is a, is a, is a big issue. Uh, that's our day-to-day, -day. we work on it constantly. Uh, we are getting much more creative in the way we address our capital needs. We are basically right now taking a three-tier or a three-basically pillar approach. One is we are looking uh, for funding that will provide equity for us because, for example, with PPP, 
we, we are over leveraged as the PPP loans still uh, sit in our books. So in order for us to get more funding, we need equity. Uh, even though that might seem par uh, like a paradox as a nonprofit, but that's how it works. Um, the other one is we have a significant amount of loan loss reserves because of the type of borrowers that we serve. So we're also looking uh, for support and capital can be used uh, for loan loss reserves as well and might be even less riskier than just providing grant money or, or lending capital. And then of course, we're looking for fuel, right? Uh, we will always need philanthropic money to cover our, our costs of operation. Although we are also have been working for some time now to make our process much, much more efficient. And we have been doing it with technology. Uh, we've learned so much from the financial technology space that, that we are basically also embarking on what we are calling impact tech, right? We need to find ways where we can make loans in a much more efficient way, still keep our high touch, but at the same time, make the process as efficient as possible. Partnerships are an important part of making a process efficient. If we want to reach more and more borrowers at scale, um, we might, might turn out that our, that our main uh, constraint is not capital. Our main constraint is how do we reach and how do we actually make the amount of loans and the amount of impact that we know that we can do. Um, so I think falls completely in line and these are the big challenges. Marla, what would you add here in terms of policy or, um, or things that impact investors or philanthropy can do? Mm -hmm. What is it you're trying to make happen at MasterCard on that front? So a lot of what Francisco just articulated at the very end there especially resonates very much, right? We think about how can a big business like MasterCard be a friend to small business? What can we do? How do we form partnerships? How do we support an ecosystem, a healthy ecosystem of, of market actors by bringing to bear all of MasterCard's tools, right? That can include a commercial relationship with MasterCard for a small company that can be a huge difference maker, right? For, for an organization that's looking for demonstrations of credibility to attract other and, and be able to compete for other market opportunities by virtue of that kind of demonstration. From a, from a philanthropic perspective and from other parts of, of MasterCard, we also think a lot about how to ensure CDFIs have a voice and that we know individual CDFIs going and, and interacting at the federal level, which is where CDFI decisions are generally made, that's a tough proposition. But with some support from a large market player like MasterCard, we can bring voice to that CDFI sector in a way that's really, really hard for Francisco on his own, right? To, to climb the mountain and, and go to Capitol Hill and, and try to get a fair hearing. So finding ways that we can use some of our access and some of our opportunity to highlight the importance of these market actors and the importance of this, of this sector of and this type of financial institution is another one of the ways we demonstrate the importance of this. And then some of what, what Tim was talking about on the secondary market side on ensuring that there is reliable access to some kind of outlet to create balance sheet space that is of paramount importance. And so one of the things we are really, really proud of is the work that we've done with you, Joyce, and the Center for Inclusive Growth to fund BOI that has now shifted into the entrepreneur-backed assets fund that, that Tim was talking about. And that is one of the things that we think is incredibly compelling and incredibly important for this sector. And I, I, you know, I compare it, again, I've spent a lot of my time in consumer finance 
if the auto lending space, for example, didn't have trusts and, and the secondary market to securitize all those loans that they create, the auto lending market would lock up right away, right? And we've seen these markets lock up right away the minute that liquidity disappears. CDFIs have the same need for that kind of liquidity, that same kind of outlet for the assets on their balance sheet. And it needs to be reliable, right? It needs to create the confidence so that DreamSpring and others like DreamSpring can go out and make loans available and put up a shingle that says, we are open for business and not be worried that I'm gonna run out of balance sheet capacity because I can't count on my secondary market outlet. That, we have to fix that. And that's, that's where our support of things like EBA and other kinds of creative activities is really exciting. And that's the work we intend to continue to do. I wanna to return to something that, that Michael said about, um, you know, as we start to look forward and what comes next, um, we, we do have to be very aware of the possibility of putting a lot of our, our best and most creative entrepreneurs in communities of color behind a debt eight ball. This is going to be a difficult recovery. And um, you know, Michael referenced grants, um, but you know, providing capital to CDFIs so that they can work with those organizations, um, so that they can um, defer a few payments, so that they can offer concessions, in many ways operates the same as a grant, right? The loan term, if, if uh, DreamSwing and other CDFIs have the ability to be creative in working with those entrepreneurs, to help them through bumps uh, and ups and downs uh, through the, the process, um, it, 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 it effectively serves as a grant that doesn't put that, uh, that entrepreneur in a place where they have to declare bankruptcy and uh, because of the way the bankruptcy system works in the United States, potentially permanently limit their ability to be uh, an asset in their community because it ruins their personal credit. Um, uh, you know, if I was really dreaming, um, I would love to see a policy initiative that, that revisits uh, our bankruptcy laws, uh, particularly around entrepreneurs of color, that doesn't put them in a position of permanently essentially uh, impairing their personal credit when they decide to take that risk to invest in their community and start a business and guaranteeing those loans in ways that can um, really put them, uh, you know, not able to start another business, not able to, to try again, but also, you know, it endangers their, you know, their credit rating, endangers all sorts of other things in their personal lives. And so if I, you know, I was reaching for the stars on a policy basis, uh, it is recognizing this environment that we're in and reforming some of our bankruptcy laws to enable uh, low-income communities to continue to take risks in their own communities uh, for their own development. Michael, do you have a, a parting shot for us? And I'm going to whisper one thing in your eye, which is Community Reinvestment Act. Thanks, Joyce. And as you know, the Federal Reserve and the OCC have issued uh, dueling proposals um, to update the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, I think it's really important to get, to get that right, both to update CRA for the current financial um, system that we live in, but also to protect and preserve the way that it has uh, helped to advance community development since its enactment in 1977, and, and particularly uh, its strong work in the late 1990s when there was a serious regulatory effort to, to make it uh, meaningful. Uh, so I do think we need to update CRA, but we need to be sure we're protecting uh, its core values. And um, I think there's going to be a lot more work that needs to happen on that. 
I do, um, I do think that uh, I've hit on the major federal investments that I think are important, investment in the CDFI fund, creation of a secondary market, support for the state small business credit initiative, and figuring out whether directly uh, or indirectly how to support the small business sector through the crisis. The last thing I'll just say is that none of this is really gonna matter unless we have a national strategy on defeating the pandemic. Uh, and we don't. Uh, and until we have a national public health strategy, none of this is gonna matter. The small businesses we wanna serve are gonna keep failing. So at, at bottom, we can do all the steps that we want on bolstering CDFIs, uh, but, but we're not gonna actually get there until we have a real strategy on the pandemic. Thank you, Michael. Uh, and I will note, <laughs> for alternate programming on lots of issues related to the pandemic. It's another issue that we're really working on at, at the Aspen Institute. So, um, well, I wanna thank, I think we're at time. I wanna thank everyone for joining us today and for this really rich conversation. Um, I will invite folks who are, are watching this to check out the Aspen Institute website. This is part of a body of work that the Business Ownership Initiative has been doing around this issue. Um, we also have colleague programs at the Aspen Institute, the Community Strategies Group, the Latinos in Society program, which are also really focused on these issues as well. So thanks for joining us today and, and uh, please continue to stay abreast of our work and, and engage with us on these issues. Thanks everyone.